You're listening to Schooled with Carla Hulse. Join Carla as she explores K-12 education disruption and has deep dive conversations with ed leaders, ed tech, ed foundations, ed professional service organizations, and ed educators who school her on ed innovations and their impact on educational policy across the country. Here's Carla. Welcome to Schooled. I'm your host, Carla Hulse, and joining me today on Schooled is someone who I regard highly in this space. Um, It's Mr. Mewtwo Fabiagi. He's the founder and CEO of Performance Fact, which is based in Oakland, California. And today's topic is kind of near and dear to, I think, both of our hearts. It's all about this idea of professional services organizations and the role that they have or continue to play in education disruptors. Um, I'm going to put a caveat in there. So not only do we consider ourselves disruptors, um, but there are times where we, we being the collective entity that is professional service organizations, we can be distractions. And so we're going to talk about that dance between those two things, how to be a disruptor or how, now, how, now, how not to become a distraction. So without further ado, uh, welcome to School of Me Too. Thank you. It's so nice to reconnect. <laughs> it's nice to, nice to have you here. So I want to kind of set the stage first. I want to spend a little bit of time giving our listeners an opportunity to understand that um, professional service organizations, they're not new, right? So I um, I first kind of understood this thing called professional services organizations decades ago. And I'll be very specific. In places like Chicago, which is where most of my career has been spent in education, they really took off. Professional service organizations really took off in the early 1990s. Um, this is when the mayor of the, of the city took over the schools. And the mayor at that time hired his first CEO. So before then, there always had been superintendents. But now there's this thing called a chief you know, education officer, a CEO. And this particular CEO created an office in the central office called the Office of Accountability. And this office kind of recognized that they alone couldn't support the hundreds of schools in Chicago, right? And not all of the schools in Chicago needed help, but there was a good substantial amount of schools that needed support. So this this Office of Accountability came up with this idea Um, that, hey, maybe if we partner with professional service organizations who have a track record-ish, right, of doing good things. So these things are all kind of arbitrary, like track record, doing good things, right? And it really was ultimately just based on relationships, right? So who knew whom at the central office really got entered into the door. Hey, come on in, partner with our schools. So thus began, for me, really this understanding that Um, Yes, schools need help. Districts not necessarily have the expertise or the bandwidth. And so we're going to go outside and get these kind of external partners to help us do that work. So does that resonate at all with kind of your understanding of how you got into this work back in the day? Or or did you come about this in a totally different different way? Yeah, actually, I think I I did. Uh, I didn't have any grand plans to be a professional service provider. I mean, my journey into public education started when a group of nine African-American scientists 
All eight of us working for Kodak, one of us at Xerox in upstate New York, Rochester specifically, decided we wanted to work with black and brown kids teaching hands-on science because we knew something about science and engineering. And we also thought we could be role models for them. So that was really how what I call my love affair with public education started, just two hours uh, a, a week in uh, one fourth grade class. Then it mushroomed into something I wanted to do full time. Kodak allowed me to do it full time. Uh, then I joined the National Center on Education and Economy. So it's been more, it was more of a personal uh, journey for me, uh, you know, personal exploration, just following a hunch I had back then that I could be of service to, you know, elementary, elementary kids. It wasn't until uh, almost 12, 13 years later on that I turned it into, you know, a company. Tell me a little bit about that journey from working with Kodak, right, kind of a private organization, but understanding that there is this great need out there, that the schools not weren't necessarily providing um, all of the experiences that all students needed. And, and you mentioned, again, kind of black and brown students, probably um, students with disabilities, um, low-income students. So again, mirrors my my kind of journey. Mine was exclusively in the ed space still, but still this understanding that schools just were not doing what they needed to do to service all kids. Um, when you started Performance Fact Doe, did you think of your organization as being a disruptor? Were you even thinking about that term or were you just thinking, I can just bring something extra to a group of kids? Like what was your impetus behind the company start though? I think looking back now, um, even though I wouldn't have used that adjective back then, disruptor, we, we were, I was trying to be a disruptor, but in a very narrow area. Again, the recall that I got into this because I wanted more black and brown kids to be signed, to become scientists and engineers. It was really very narrow. I didn't know enough about schools, how well they were doing, you know, whether they were serving all kids. What I, I did know, there were not enough of them going into science and engineering fields. So that was how I started. It was really my transition from Kodak to the National Center on Education and the Economy. That was when I was exposed to the much larger uh, perspective. It's a terrific organization when it comes to identifying problems, conceptualizing solutions. They were very good at getting the right folks around the table. And I think back then, they didn't call it disruption, but that was very clearly front and center to everything the National Center was doing. So that, that would have been my first formal introdu- introduction. And the, this is a really great conversation, Carla, because it's making me kind of reflect on my own journey. So when I, when I, I stayed only two years with the National Center, so when I left in 1995, and from my own firm, I had a much broader view of the edge space, and I knew that we wanted to do something different. I can't tell you that I had a master plan for how that was going to happen, but I did know we, wa- we wanted to impact things in fundamental ways. So the National Center trend, uh, journey probably was the first time I started thinking my, of myself as a professional service provider because they had clients all across the country. I want to I touch a little bit on that, You having a broader sense of maybe the scope and maybe just the magnitude of the issues, right? I think you and I, we've talked a lot about just 
There's, this is such a complex thing, this thing we call K-12 education. So now you've got a broader sense of what, you know, how, how deep and how wide these issues are. But I want to tap into this. What did you think you could contribute, right? So I'm getting back to this disruption. How are you going to disrupt? First of all, what were you going to disrupt? What did you think was wrong? And then how are you going to fix it? Because I, I, I want the answers. <laughs> you too, I want the answers. <laughs> <laughs> Even after more than 30 years now, I, I'm not sure I know what the answer uh, or is. But I do have, you know, my own view of the world. There's a few things that I've learned. that I recognize as one-on-one pathway to home, you know, whatever home is for each one of us, but I am very clear about how I feel we can make a difference and be disruptors. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get to talk about that, uh, you know, later on. So when you were kind of branching out on your own and you now have this kind of, you know, 30,000 foot level understanding of it's not just about getting um, more black and brown kids into science, right? There's a, it's elevated, right? And so now what did you identify as kind of your problems that you were trying to solve? And then how were you thinking you were going to solve it? Now, I guess one way I can describe it, the what the National Center did, and it actually resonated with the way I process things, that when things are not working well, I would say the first place to start is to rethink the design. You know, to rethink the design. And when I... Well, I mean, even back then, and to some extent now too, when we look at the public education system we have, it is the design is fundamentally flawed. I mean, that's not a pejorative uh, statement, but it's just fundamentally flawed. The, the way we fund it, who teaches what kid, yeah, the lack of clear accountability, the fact that we don't have, we haven't quite professionalized the profession. So, you know, when you put all of those things together, we shouldn't be surprised that we've been getting the kinds of results we're getting. And, you know, the people are well-intentioned. You know, everyone works, or most people work hard. But the doing things out of the goodness of our Christian or Muslim or, you know, Jewish hearts is not enough for fixing a really large-scale problem. We need something that's a lot more, you know, clear-eyed about it. And 30 years on, I will still maintain that the design is still flawed. And that's really why we haven't, you know, made as much progress as I know we all want, including the the everyday practitioners also. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's why you and I connect so well, because we do understand that it is it's fundamentally a design flaw, right? So your organization is called Performance Fact. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about exactly what you do, but then, you know, the focus of my organization is all around managing performance, right? It, it is about the design of the organization itself that is flawed, right? So we can keep tinkering around the edges and introducing Common Core, or let's, you know, let's have, you know, a whole system of NWEA assessments, or let's now do community schools, or let's do small schools, or, you know, all of those lovely ideas, right, will not work if you don't have an engine, or you don't have four tires, right? <laughs> so it's like, um, how have you been able to elevate that message? How are you able to do that? Or, or, or is it falling on deaf ears? Because you just, you mentioned that people are well-intentioned, right? And people are still just going about doing the business of whatever they do, right? Bringing their external expertise, I'm using air quotes, 
um, but not attacking the issue at heart. So how are you elevating that message? We have a few themes that um, really ground our work. The, and they sort of, I, I, I think I've convinced myself that come together as a story. There are lots of different ways to tell a story, you know, different uh, beginning, middle and ending. And when we tell our stories by starting with something we call a premise, it's really about the mindset piece. And we assert that all students will learn at high levels when instruction meets their needs. And that anything they've learned well already has been taught well already. If you accept that, then you also have to accept that anything they have not learned well yet has not been taught well yet. So the problem is not with the kids. If you accept those two steps, if they've learned it well, they've been taught well. If they haven't learned it well yet, they haven't been taught well yet. So our, our premise is that if we want improvements in student outcomes, the starting point is not to fix the kids, but to fix adult practices, teaching practices, leadership practices, and organizational practices. So again, back to the design argument. It is the, it is though it's the absence of the effective practices that produces the cancer results that we have. And I don't think we've, as a, as a country, we haven't really taken that on, you know, this notion of, of focusing on continuous improvement of adult practices. If I know what those practices look like, you know, if I, if you can, you know, uh, quantify, observe the practices, if they're effective, the results just follow. You know, that's why the, the, law, the law of cause and effect comes in. The cause are the practices the effects are the outcomes for kids. So if I want a different effect, it is cause that I need to focus on. And we don't do that. We still have a system that although, you know, people don't, might not admit it or recognize it, we still have a, it's like something is still wrong with the kids, you know, rather than something's wrong with our practice. So that, that, that's, that's the first thing we call our premise. Yeah, it's, it's funny. We use um, the same concepts, but, different terminology. You're talking about cause and effect. Um, in my organization, it's inputs and outputs, right? So if we, if we keep ignoring the inputs, but keep focusing on the outputs, which is the entire system, we have these beautiful dashboards that every state has to have. It's all output, all kids output data, but we never scrutinize um, the inputs. What does, you know, what level of expertise do our teachers, our leaders, our ancillary staff, what do they have? What are they coming into the system with? And more importantly, again, this gets to your idea that you brought in earlier that um, it is larger than the school building, right? It's also pre-service, right? So if we're continue to ignore what's happening before teachers and leaders get to our door, then we're still going to be left with the, the caliber of teachers and leaders that we have at no fault of their own. And I think that's part of the, we would have to say to ourselves, because I went to a college of education, I didn't really learn anything. I've graduated, I have a degree and a couple of degrees from a college of education, and I don't, I don't have a substantive set of skills. Who wants to say that, me too? Like who, who, who as a profession would want to say that? That is going to be very, but we have to have that reckoning, That's hard. right? That reckoning has to happen. Yeah. And you, you're right. Again, back again to the fundamental flaw in the design, the uh, incentives or accountability drive performance. And that's another place we don't want to go yet. In virtually any other field except public education, it's the only place where we have things set up where 
you know, your, the output you produce or the quality of it doesn't really matter. And uh, in any other place in in our our personal lives, if I go to a grocery store that doesn't really meet my needs, I stop going. If I go to a car dealership that messed up us, you know, lately people delivering uh, stuff to us at home due to the pandemic, you know, you switch. We can't quite do that. I'm not saying um, they, without really having, without incentivizing performance, it's going to take us much longer. And the performance that I want to see, if I had a hundred, you know, uh, chits to spread around, I would put 89 of my chits on continuous improvement of the adult practices. And I'll put 11% on student outcome. And there's method to my madness. It goes back again to cause and effect. If I can improve adult practices, the student outcome just follows. But like you said, we keep focusing on, you know, just the outcome and not on the input. We keep focused on the effects and not the cause. And it is cause that we need to really spend more time jacking up. So I want to talk a little bit more about um, the idea of our people, right? So we are professional services um, organizations, and there are thousands of us out there in every district, in every state, right, Um, who don't necessarily hold the same beliefs that you and I do. Right. They're there to deliver their whatever curriculum training for X amount of teachers and get out of there. So how do we slow down that distraction that schools, districts buy into? How do we become a force where we are in a supportive way, right? Disrupting those and we and, and we've had this conversation. Those are really bad practices, right? They just keep perpetuating the inequities. How do we come about doing that? And we've had conversations about maybe coming together in some kind of network. So talk to me a little bit about how do we stop the crazy train? Because I think it's gonna be us as a group of folks, maybe who can do it. I don't see I don't see the Fed stepping in. I don't see State Department of Ed stepping in. I don't see foundations, maybe. I think it's gonna have to be we're gonna have to police ourselves, right? It really has to be. And when I think about it, Carla, it's the same, the same thing we say about the school system. Those are the same practices that we have or our sector has at this point. We haven't professionalized professional services providers. And I agree with you. It does, it, it should not come from the government. It shouldn't come from you know, any of those, um, compliance driven uh, authorities. I mean, lawyers, um, was, you know, monitor themselves, they discipline their own profession, engineers do, plumbers do, and so on. So in this, the, my, my response is pretty much the same as what I gave before. If we, uh, anytime you have a professional group that doesn't have professional standards and ways of, you know, that qualifying people, quali- uh, recognizing that they've met the standards, making sure that they hone their practice, making sure that they follow whatever the criteria are, you will have the kind of stuff we have now. So professionalizing professional service providers, I think it's a terrific idea. Uh, and that's just, it just makes sense in any profession. And, um, you know, you can force people to join the profession, but you could, we could set it up such that we have, uh, you know, like a, a good housekeeping seal of approval type thing mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're going to be a professional, that these, this profession, I'm going to use a kind of like a crazy analogy. Take Angie's list. Yes. All right. So instead of calling up any plumber, 
you know, you can go to Angie's list and find, and you have the assurance that they've gone through some process. So we can tell everyone to join the certification process, but you can set it up in such a way that they, you know, the, the savvy consumer will go to the Angie's list of professional service providers with assurance that those folks have been qualified and sort of like certificated by their colleagues. Right. Which makes it, you know, quite powerful. Yeah. So I'm going to dig a little deeper. So I, I, I understand the Angie's list analogy. I'm more concerned about the services that are being delivered. Right. So I want to make sure that whatever organizations that are certified are doing the same kinds of work that you and I are doing. But then who is to, who is to believe that what you and I are doing are the right thing? So I think that's where it's going to get really interesting, right? Because we have a complete yeah. system is flawed view, right? And mm-hmm. we believe wholly that um, inputs are flawed and that needs to change, but that has to be tied to colleges of education, and I didn't even get into this, this whole idea of circumventing traditional methods of being a certified teacher, a leader. I mean, we can, that's a whole other mm-hmm. podcast on that, right? So, so is it not just being certified, but is it a particular certification that you're getting? You only do this kind of work so that you are dismantling the current yes. system. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to kind of make sure that was clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, 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 certainly could, we could say it that way. I mean, I could... I'm thinking of my chemical when I was a chemical engineer a long time ago, where there are different tiers. I mean, when I first started, I think it was uh, AIT. That was my designation, engineer in training. I already had a bachelor's degree, but I wasn't, you know, a, a certified uh, professional engineer yet. So the those who want to be in the profession, we can set those things up by ourselves. We have some standards. Those standards can be tiered. You know, you may have to uh, go, you know, come back in front of your peers, in front of your colleagues, and prove that you're ready for the next level. I think we want to be careful not to, uh, you know, communicate that we have it figured out. I still don't 30 years later on, and I certainly didn't 30 years ago. Right. Uh, but if I, if we could have, you know, like a, a self-monitoring body of other practitioners that we have to stand in front of, and then we say, you know, now you got it stamped for the next level, and you, you've been, you've been certified by your peers to be able to operate at that level because you've made the standards that are set for that level. Yeah. And then you make that information public. Again, back to the Andrew Slate's piece. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the folks that have gone through the process. We, their colleagues tell, assure you that they're ready. Yeah. That they can, they can do this stuff well. But I won't keep, I won't, I won't insist that everyone should go through it. I just let him. I let the market take over at that point. You know, to you you have a place that you trust, um, and you can get your referrals through them. And then ultimately, to be to prove that we have it figured out, our own clients have to make the kinds of improvements that we say we're good at getting them to achieve. Right. So it's like what what's the output that we are getting out of all the efforts we're putting into the work? Yeah, I want you to kind of. Um put on your magic hat or look in your magic eight ball and kind of think about the future. So, mm-hmm. I mean, again, we've, when did we have this first conversation about this kind of 
network of professional service. It's like three or four years now we were talking about yes. this network. Easily. Right, right. So, you know, this thing it, called... Very easily. I, I was, yeah. Four years? Yeah, at least four years ago. <laughs> at least four years ago, yeah. So, and the way you were just communicating this process, it feels very slow to me. You too, right? And so this mm-hmm. thing called coronavirus, you may have heard of it. You may not have. It's this little pandemic thing that kind of hit us last year. <laughs> um, I, I think I read it. I read it by the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So this has slammed into us, right? It's it's bumped everybody in Ed space and we're all kind of spinning our heads. I think you and I aren't spinning our heads because we've been saying this these things for 30 years. Like it's it's flawed. We need to change. Where's the urgency? Do you think that this this pandemic has given folks the urgency? Because if we if we are waiting for people to kind of buy into certifying and all that stuff, we're going to lose more generations of kids if we're just slowly mm-hmm. letting our our peers in this space to dole out, for lack of a better term, crap, right? And and yeah. and it happens yeah. because it happens um, when the feds waive money. So now we've got almost a half a trillion dollars heading into school districts, right? And what are they going to do with it? They're going to call up their friendly neighborhood curriculum, whomever, or their friendly neighborhood, you know, professional learning community group. You know what I mean? Just to do the same old stuff. Yeah. Um, how do we yeah. stop it now when there's there's this kind of heightened awareness that, yes, there are huge inequities in education. How do we take a hold of it now when people are focused on it? I still think it's, it has to come back to just having uh, these, what I call the professional standards very clear and then the accountability piece at the other end, all right? We, we've been at this, all of us, for, you know, maybe since the National at Risk in 1981, 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going on 40 years now. The, we've done a lot of work on the... Um, uh, you know, different programs, different standards and so on, but we really haven't done a really good job, whether within the public ed- education system or those of us who support them. We haven't done a good job on the accountability piece, right? I mean, none of us really has. And we're having this conversation about uh, professional service providers, some more accountable than others. We can have the same thing about just school systems. We can have the same thing about, you know, state education departments. So for me, it still comes back to the design. All right. There's certain design principles. And until those principles are in place, we're going to get what we get. Now, regarding your point about, about pace, the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that makes public education different is because we don't have the, the profit motive. And I'm not making a case for or against that. So they, by its very nature, there's a, you know, a little bit, you have no choice, really, as long as most of the funding comes from the state government or the federal government or from taxpayers, than to figure out how to take people along. You still have to get the, the all the publics, plural, mm-hmm. to say they are ready to move with you. Otherwise, you can you can you can be running all by yourself. We know I'm fo- we know I'm following you, and that's what we have now. We don't need any new. Uh, I contend that. Um, the, what we need, what we need to do to get our kids to perform at high levels is not rocket science. We know what those are. They're thousands of books. Okay. So how, how do we 
maybe this is what I, I, a different way of thinking of the implementation gap. How do we make the implementation and knowledge gap match up to what we know works? I mean, we're in a profession where knowledge is open and free. People don't, you cannot patent your ideas. You cannot get exclusive license for it. You cannot say it's your IP. You know, it's all silly. So we even know what to do. We do know what to do. We know what works. Okay. So how do we create the conditions, you know, that will move all of us, those who work within the school system, service providers, governmental agencies, move us towards what we know works? You know, how do we design consistent with that? And much of that is really political, political will, yeah. you know, quite, quite frankly. Yeah, I... I- I like how you're so positive and maybe I'm always the negative one. We have meetings. Maybe I'm always the, <laughs> the negative Nelly in the back <laughs> because I don't think the vast majority of folks, um, when we get together, right. When we have those kind of state meetings and we're all, it's all the same players, right. Or we're at whatever kind of meetings. I don't think those folks really know what to do. So I was reading something that came across my email earlier today from one of those kind of organizations that we know and love, right? That sends out stuff all the time on yeah. how to still use your millions of dollars. And right. it just it just had like four bullets, nothing substantive, mm-hmm. right? Because they don't really know how to do it. And I, and I, I always yeah. get back yeah. to these same people, many of whom went through colleges of, colleges of education as, as I did or didn't. And we don't learn how to do those things in colleges of education, me too. We don't, right? So it's, I think you have a lot more faith in our profession than I think I do. I think I'm really struggling with, there are folks who are highly regarded who don't know what they're doing. And then what? That's my, that's my urgency. Like, we've got to move people out of the way. And how do we get enough energy heading in the direction that you and I are passionate about yeah. and clear out the other yeah. folks? Who are just Correct. making noise? Well, their distractions. Yeah, I think the um, the way I tend to approach things is how do I get them to want what they need? All right. So how do you get people to want what they need, even if it's you know what you think they need? <laughs> right. So they it's 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 still the marketplace of ideas. So those folks that you know. Um, you feel maybe ought not be there on this side and you're on this side. So how do you, how do you get the, the decision makers? It could be a teacher or principal or superintendent. How do you get them to choose you? Okay. So the, I mean, the way we do that, uh, again, is first we make our work public and almost all the work we do is through, through referrals. So how do you, how do we get those who don't, who you feel don't know enough yet to choose of ideas or service providers from the school's perspective. So, you know, how do we position ourselves such that in that marketplace, people choose us? You know, how do we set it up? Right. And I come back again to this notion of, um, you know, those who are of like mind, Mm -hmm. we get together, we set some very, very clear standards. We hold ourselves to those standards. We discipline ourselves. And I think the school folks, you know, they, they want something out of, out of their money. They want to do well also. Um, and without some way of us coming together as a professional group, it'd be very difficult for folks to choose between, you know, you and somebody else or between, between me and somebody else. Yeah. So I still love the idea of uh, a group yeah. of professional service providers 
with sign asset by service providers in consultation with our prospective clients. We yeah. monitor to ourselves, we grade ourselves, we discipline yeah. ourselves. And you get a lot of respect that way. Because yeah. again, it, it's, it's educating because it's a very tough job. And I think practitioners are looking for the best that they can get. They don't yeah. always get that. And there's no really uh, transparent forum or organization through which they can access those. Correct. We could create that for among ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we do need to circle back to that. Me too. I th- I completely agree. So I end my podcasts um, asking my guests these same questions, and you've touched on them earlier. But I just want to give you another opportunity to kind of um, call these out succinctly. Okay. So, how do you keep positive, and do you see a future where disparities and inequities are completely eradicated in K twelve education? And then, second to that, yeah. how do we get there? <laughs> correct, correct. The I have to say, you know, um, yes to do I see that being eradicated, but with a caveat, which, which kind <laughs> no. of makes it no. <laughs> which which makes it a no. See, I see the um, it's going to get a little bit esoteric here. <laughs> that you know, in a high school, every year there's a new ninth grade class. Mm-hmm. So at the same time that some people are graduating, that's a new crop of folks coming in. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think it'll be, uh, I don't see a day, a date in time, such and such, you know, 2497 or whatever. <laughs> God. Where, well, we'll wake up and we're like on the lake, we'll be gone. Everything is perfect. That day wouldn't come because there's always a new influx of folks who are not as seasoned yet. Now, the, the day that I do see, though, uh, I can see in the not-too-distant future a much more equitable way of running things. You know, I think the, the conversations that have taken place, not just in the U.S., across the whole globe, that's a massive change in consciousness. And a lot of that is really being brought about by the in- Internet. The Internet is bringing us face-to-face with the reality that we are really connected. And we, we share a lot of things in common. And it's, it's an, been an accelerator in that sense. So, yes, I see the day when we will be more equitable. I don't see one day when all of a sudden everything is perfect because there's always a new incoming class of ninth graders, so to speak. And in terms of how to stay, stay positive, see, my, my goal has never really changed, um, even as I think about it now. It's always to, you know, do better and make it easier for those who come after me. The same way those who came before me did the same thing. So I don't have as a goal solving the problem. I have as a goal making it easier for those who come after me, you know, making, making a contribution, advancing the cause, and uh, then handing off to giving those who come after me who choose to work in this field, um, you know, a more informed and easier starting point. And they can hand off to the next people who come after me and so on. So that, that's really my, if, if we, if I could see that continuous growth in consciousness and outcomes and equity and so on, I would say mission accomplished. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to think about it because there are so many days I, and I'm sure there are millions of teachers and leaders who feel this way. That's this kind of overwhelmingness of the problem, right? Cause you're just like, oh my yes. gosh, I can't, I can't see us getting out of it. But if you view this as kind of almost as a relay race, Right, we're going into the Olympics Correct. in a couple of weeks, and we're just That's handing a good the baton. 
Thank you. One thing yeah. that I said that made sense today yeah. that was handing the baton. <laughs> and, and it's and it, the great thing about the relay, yeah. right? There's a person in front reaching back, right? For so um, take it from you. Take it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I like that. I really do yeah. like that. Yeah. That's a really excellent. I really love the uh, relay race example. Now I find it most effective with teachers um, when I tell them that you know your if you want to really quantify what our expectations of you, it's, it's this. Uh, every kid that comes to you experiences growth. And then those that are farthest behind when they come to you experience one on one year's growth in one year. If you could do that, continuous growth for every kid and then one, one point something X growth for those who are farther behind, you've done your job. Because it's unreasonable to expect one teacher to close a three or four year uh, learning gap. And it, it, it makes them feel weighted down. But if you could just say, no, every kid, just move them beyond the starting point. You don't have to get them all the way home. You will hand the baton to somebody else. But get them far along than where, how they came to you, mission accomplished. That's a lot. No one can argue against that. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you add to that, which gets back to kind of our beliefs, is that not only is it important for that child to grow, it's equally, if not more important, for that adult to grow. So that teacher needs to be moving along the continuum of the teaching practice, right? So if if you want little Sue, Bobby, or Joe to grow, you have to grow. Um, so I think we need to. And have in fact, you have to grow first. Right, right, right. Yes. And that's the missing yeah, part. Yeah, you of have the to grow first because. I sort of explained this. I put my hand on top of my head. And I said, you know, if this is how far I've come in master my practice, no kid that comes through me can perform at a higher level than where my, where I've come. It is only when I grow my practice that kids have room to grow. So your statement is absolutely right. It's back again to cause and effect. The adults have to grow first before the kids can grow. You can't take them farther than you've come. You cannot mentor in others what you haven't mastered in yourself. So everything really comes back to adult practices. Adult practices first. So let's that's end, where we should invest. Let's end on that that great note. So again, the um, the title of this particular podcast was um, "Looking in the Mirror," and I think we've done a good job at being self reflective on not only ourselves, kind of individually, but as a, a this entity called professional services organizations that we ourselves need to be looking in the mirror so that we continue to be on some level, right? Disruptors as opposed to just being distractions and, and, and perpetuating the inequities. So with that, um, you two, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, thanks to our listeners for listening in. Um, it has been a joy as always. I always enjoy talking to you, as you know, and I'll try to stay way more Thank positive. You. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I Thanks also, for me take, this, this is a really great idea, Carla. So I appreciate the opportunity. No, this is great. And, and I know this is a limited podcast this summer, so I, I, I know I'm bringing it back next summer, but I'll just see if there are times throughout the year that it's, it's cogent for me to to have these conversations. But um, again, I don't want to be a distraction to folks. I figure summer is a good time when people have some downtime. But 
Um, in closing, also, I want to thank uh, John Largent, who's the founder and CEO of Game Day Media Enterprises, and his team at Game Day Media for making this podcast possible. So join me again next week when I have a new guest and a new Ed Disruptor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Schooled with Carla Hulse is available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>